But the frones are tough. Ethan'll likely touch a hundred. Good God, I exclaimed. At the moment, Ethan Frome, after climbing to his seat, had leaned over to assure himself of the security of a wooden box, also with the druggist's label on it, which he had placed in the back of the buggy, and I saw his face as it probably looked when he thought himself alone. That man touch a hundred? He looks as if he was dead and in hell now. Harmon drew a slab of tobacco from his pocket, cut off a wedge, and pressed it into the leather pouch of his cheek. Guess he's been in Starkfield too many winters. Most of the smart ones get away. Why didn't he? Somebody had to stay and care for the folks. There weren't ever anybody but Ethan. First his father, then his mother, then his wife. And then the smash-up? Harmon chuckled sardonically. Mm, that's so. He had to stay then. I see. And since then they've had to care for him? Harmon thoughtfully passed his tobacco to the other cheek. Oh, as to that, I guess it's always Ethan done the caring. Though Harmon Gow developed the tale as far as his mental and moral reach permitted, there were perceptible gaps between his facts, and I had the sense that the deeper meaning of the story was in the gaps. But one phrase stuck in my memory, and served as the nucleus about which I grouped my subsequent inferences— Guess he's been in Starkfield too many winters. Before my own time there was up, I had learned to know what that meant. Yet I had come in the degenerate day of trolley, bicycle, and rural delivery, when communication was easy between the scattered mountain villages, and the bigger towns in the valleys, such as Bettsbridge and Shad's Falls, had libraries, theaters, and YMCA halls to which the youth of the hills could descend for recreation. But when winter shut down on Starkfield, and the village lay under a sheet of snow perpetually renewed from the pale skies, I began to see what life there, or rather its negation, must have been in Ethan Frome's young manhood. I had been sent up by my employers on a job connected with the big powerhouse at Corbury Junction, and a long-drawn carpenter strike had so delayed the work that I found myself anchored at Starkfield, the nearest habitable spot, for the best part of the winter. I chafed at first, and then, under the hypnotizing effect of routine, gradually began to find a grim satisfaction in the life. During the early part of my stay, I had been struck by the contrast between the vitality of the climate and the deadness of the community. Day by day, after the December snows were over, a blazing blue sky poured down torrents of light and air on the white landscape, which gave them back in an intense glitter. One would have supposed that such an atmosphere must quicken the emotions as well as the blood— but it seemed to produce no change except that of retarding still more the sluggish pulse of Starkfield. 
When I had been there a little longer and had seen this phase of crystal clearness followed by long stretches of sunless cold, when the storms of February had pitched their white tents about the devoted village and the wild cavalry of March winds had charged down to their support, I began to understand why Starkfield emerged from its six-month siege like a starved garrison capitulating without quarter. Twenty years earlier, the means of resistance must have been far fewer, and the enemy in command of almost all the lines of access between the beleaguered villages. And considering these things, I felt the sinister force of Harmon's phrase, Most of the smart ones get away. But if that were the case, how could any combination of obstacles have hindered the flight of a man like Ethan Frome? During my stay at Starkfield, I lodged with a middle-aged widow, colloquially known as Mrs. Ned Hale. Mrs. Hale's father had been the village lawyer of a previous generation, and Lawyer Varnum's house, where my landlady still lived with her mother, was the most considerable mansion in the village. It stood at one end of the main street, its classic portico and small-paned windows looking down a flagged path between Norway spruces to the slim white steeple of the Congregational Church. It was clear that the Varnum fortunes were at the ebb, but the two women did what they could to preserve a decent dignity, and Mrs. Hale, in particular, had a certain wan refinement not out of keeping with her pale old-fashioned house. In the best parlor, with its black horsehair and mahogany weakly illuminated by a gurgling carcel lamp, I listened every evening to another and more delicately shaded version of the Starkfield Chronicle. It was not that Mrs. Ned Hale felt or affected any social superiority to the people about her. It was only that the accident of a finer sensibility and a little more education had put just enough distance between herself and her neighbors to enable her to judge them with detachment. She was not unwilling to exercise this faculty, and I had great hopes of getting from her the missing facts of Ethan Frome's story, or rather such a key to his character as should coordinate the facts I knew. Her mind was a storehouse of innocuous anecdote, and any question about her acquaintances brought forth a volume of detail. But on the subject of Ethan Frome, I found her unexpectedly reticent. There was no hint of disapproval in her reserve. I merely felt in her an insurmountable reluctance to speak of him or his affairs. Although, yes, I knew them both. It was awful seeming to be the utmost concession that her distress could make to my curiosity. So marked was the change in her manner, such depths of sad initiation did it imply that, with some doubts as to my delicacy, I put the case anew to my village oracle, Harmon Gow, but got for my pains only an uncomprehending grunt. Ruth Varnum was always as nervous as a rat, and come to think of it, she was the first one to see him after they was picked up. It happened right below Lawyer Varnum's, down at the bend of the Corbury Road, just round about the time that Ruth got engaged to Ned Hale. The young folks was all friends, and I guess she just can't bear to talk about it. <laughs> 
She's had troubles enough of her own. All the dwellers in Starkfield, as in more notable communities, had had enough troubles of their own to make them comparatively indifferent to those of their neighbors. And though all conceded that Ethan Frome's had been beyond the common measure, no one gave me an explanation of the look in his face, which, as I persisted in thinking, neither poverty nor physical suffering could have put there. Nevertheless, I might have contented myself with the story pieced together from these hints, had it not been for the provocation of Mrs. Hale's silence, and, a little later, for the accident of personal contact with the man. On my arrival at Starkfield, Dennis Eady, the rich Irish grocer who was the proprietor of Starkfield's nearest approach to a livery stable, had entered into an agreement to send me over daily to Corbury Flats, where I had to pick up my train for the junction. But about the middle of the winter, Eady's horses fell ill of a local epidemic. The illness spread to the other Starkfield stables, and for a day or two I was put to it to find a means of transport. Then Harmon Gow suggested that Ethan Frome's bay was still on his legs, and that his owner might be glad to drive me over. I stared at the suggestion. Ethan Frome? But I've never even spoken to him. Why on earth should he put himself out for me? Harmon's answer surprised me still more. I don't know as he would, but I know he wouldn't be sorry to earn a dollar. I had been told that Frome was poor, and that the sawmill and the arid acres of his farm yielded scarcely enough to keep his household through the winter, but I had not supposed him to be in such want as Harmon's words implied, and I expressed my wonder. Well...